This episode of the Coin World Podcast is brought to you by the Coin World Marketplace. The Coin World Marketplace is the safest way to buy and sell your coins and bullion. Order from the dealer of your choice and pay safely and securely using our escrow checkout. Visit coinworld.market to browse our inventory today. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. Here are your hosts, Chris Bullfinch and Jeff Stark. Welcome to another episode of the Coin World Podcast. I'm Chris Bullfinch. And I'm Jeff Stark. We've got a great episode for you today. We're covering some North American numismatic news. We sit down with Ira Goldberg to talk about the Tyrant Collection that will be on display at Long Beach this week. And sandwiched in between those two is our usual bevy of numismatic trivia and information. And if you're enjoying those nuggets of goodness, please, please, please find us on your favorite podcast subscription service and subscribe. We look forward to connecting with you every week and share that to all that you know who might find this interesting. What we're finding interesting this week is some news from the U.S. Mint. It seems we always have to mention what they're doing. What's going on this week? Well, it turns out that uh, the coins that we use uh, every day or if you're a millennial, you know, every once in a while, because we don't use cash. Or never. <laughs> or never. It turns out coins are getting more expensive to make. The Mint puts out a biennial report, which is once every two years, not twice a year, just for the sake of clarity. And it reported that the cost for all four of the circulating denominations, one cent, five cent, 10 cent, and 25 cent, have all increased. And the one cent and five cent coins, the penny and nickel, as they're colloquially referred to, both cost more than their face value to produce, making them a net loss for the mint and for the taxpayer. The cent currently, according to this report, which sampled from fiscal year 2018, the beginning of 19, found... So it's fairly recent. Yeah, yeah. The recent report found that a one cent coin costs 2.06 cents to make, and a five cent coin costs 7.53 cents to make. So both of those are operating at a loss, and then the 10 cent or dime is 3.73 cents, and the 25 cent or quarter is... Is 8.87 cents. So those two are actually quite economical for their face value relative to their cost to produce, but the penny and the nickel or the one cent and the five cent, remain unprofitable and, in fact, a loss. The Mint has no plans to replace the costly one cent coin because they actually can't find any cheaper an alloy than the one that they presently use, which is 99.2% zinc with a 0.8% copper coating. They actually cannot find a cheaper alloy that would bring the cost of the cent down. <coughs> Aluminum. Yet, <laughs> and yet the Mint uh, has no plans, at least according to the report and according to statements from Mint officials, there is no indication that they have any plans to get rid of it. So we will continue to have the one cent coin in our change. You know who doesn't have the one cent coin in their change anymore? Uh, I think they might be our neighbors to the north. Absolutely. Canada. We're, we're heading to Canada. Uh, they don't have the one cent. And what they do now have, though... It just uh, last week is a new circulating commemorative $2 coin. This coin commemorates the 75th anniversary of the D-Day landing, specifically the Canadian involvement. Juneau Beach is probably the uh, most notable part of that. And there's there's two versions of this coin. One is plain, as usual. Another is 
colorized. They have added color to it. And there's two million of those colorized versions. One million of the plain versions are are out there. I was fortunate enough to visit the Winnipeg Mint on May 13, so about three weeks ago, when the final day of production was underway for the colorized versions and got to see the color being added in a five-step process, and it's really cool. So, of course, we have stories uh, about the new coin, and we'll have more coverage of my visit to the Mint in future venues, but it's neat to see what Canada is doing using their circulating coin landscape to commemorate such an important world event. Very interesting. Now, apropos of Canada and its provinces, what is our trivia question this week? So, we're still in Canada, and the question this week for you, don't mm. answer it yet. I, I know. I know you know the answer, mm. though. The last Newfoundland coins were struck in what year? All right. And I will ponder that. Think about it, and we will let that marinate for the listeners. And right now, we're going to talk about something that happened in the U.S., though. Yes, indeed. We're going back to the U.S. Back to the U.S. for our series of the week. And this week, we're talking about a not especially popular, but nonetheless interesting, uh, U.S. and rather short-lived U.S. dollar series, the Eisenhower dollar coin. Hey, I like Ike. So, the Eisenhower dollar was minted between 1971 and 1978 to honor our 34th president, Dwight Eisenhower, who had died two years before the start of the series. He died in March of 1969, and the series was inaugurated in 71, uh, partially to commemorate Eisenhower, but also to honor our landing on the moon, the Apollo 11 mission that put uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin onto the moon in 1969 as well. And Frank Aspero, who, as we know, is responsible for the Kennedy half dollar and he did the Roosevelt. No, that's Frank Sinek did the Sinek. How are you saying? John Sinek. But uh, Gasparro is known especially uh, for his besides his work at the U.S. Mint for doing a number of designs uh, for the Franklin Mint Mm. uh, world coinage. He did uh, a great, great bird series, British Virgin Islands. Oh, interesting. He, he, He was a prolific sculptor and designer, but. You know, Amer- uh, American collectors think no. of him for yeah for the Kennedy, Kennedy half and, and the and, and the Ike dollar yeah. So he designed a fairly simple bust of Eisenhower on the obverse with Liberty and God We Trust in the date, and the reverse though is a little bit more symbolic. It's an eagle laying an olive branch on the moon on the surface of the moon. You can see the lunar surface with a bunch of craters, and then. <laughs> The eagle has landed. Exactly. One small step for man and all that. And then the earth is on the uh, top left area in the fields of the coin, sort of showing the uh, the, our lunar. Yeah, the distance and our sort of lunar journey. The circulation strikes were all copper nickel clad because uh, the mint was interested in reintroducing the dollar coin after the peace dollar was retired in 1935. There was some interest to see if the one dollar note could be replaced with a one dollar coin. And the mint seemed to feel that, you know, a a coin that was the same size as the old dollar coins, but a cheaper composition, copper nickel, might be able to fit that bill. Uh, it, they no, pun no, <laughs> no pun intended. No pun intended. It did not function particularly well, and it did not prove to be especially popular, which led to smaller mintages over the course of its run. 
And in addition to the copper nickel circulation strikes, a lot of uncirculated and proof ikes of both copper nickel and silver clad composition. For those listeners who are unaware, silver clad composition is not quite the usual coin silver, 90 percent U.S. coin silver. That is to say, 90 percent. It's a 40 percent silver and the rest being copper nickel. And the Eisenhower dollar was issued during a time of great national celebration. It was. And the Eisenhower dollar was one of the coins that had its uh, reverse motif modified and its date doubled in 1976 to commemorate the bicentennial of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. And they stuck with the lunar theme for the modified design. As a lot of people know, in 1976, they doubled the dates on the coins, saying 1776-1976 to denote the, the two years. And they changed the reverses on all of the coins. And the Eisenhower dollar was one of the coins that was being produced at the time. So the new reverse features a picture of the Liberty Bell right in front of a picture of the moon, referencing our recent lunar landing and the lunar landings that occurred in the 1970s and the Liberty Bell from Independence Hall in Philadelphia. So the coins were not especially popular and quite a few of them were made, meaning that for collectors these days, you can usually acquire fairly high grade specimens fairly easily. And you can put together a nice, oh, little, yeah. nice little set in a dance go album, faces up nice, looks at nice presentation. I will say it's sort of a, to me, uh, the Frankenstein coin because you have designs that don't necessarily relate. You know, if I want to see something with the moon, I want, I would think Kennedy with something moon related. And then I gosh, oh my, okay, there's Eisenhower and there's the moon and Independence Hall and those, well, <laughs> well they're all American motifs. So Nixon, who was the president, doesn't make an appearance, and it's it just doesn't make a tremendous amount of sense. Yeah, so it, it's all messed up. But it, it is, is all messed up. But it is nonetheless an interesting coin that sort of demonstrates the transition towards the small size dollar coins that we're accustomed to. This was the last large size circulating large size dollar to be minted by the U.S. Mint. Absolutely. So it's an interesting and transitional design. And speaking of events in the and images from the 1960s, Jeff, what was happening this week in, in numismatic history. history? Absolutely. So let's roll the clock back to 1963, June 4th. That's when Congress authorized the exchange of silver certificates for silver dollars. So silver certificates, if you have one today, they're neat. They're fairly ubiquitous. You can often find them in very nice grades for $3 or less, especially if they're the later series notes. Yeah, the 57s and yeah, later. Yeah. But there was a time when those were still good to be turned in for real silver. Now you can't do that. The period has long since elapsed, more than 50 years ago. But the beginning of that uh, authorization and that change as people, uh, I mean, there's there's famous images, people lined up outside the Treasury buildings to redeem the paper, fiat currency, the just the printed for something tangible, this this silver coin. And it was um, it, it was such a neat moment in numismatic history. Mm. And that all began, gosh, 56 years ago now this week, June 4th, 1963. So what would happen if I left Chris to his own devices? Do you think he would get in trouble? 
I'm, I'd for sure get in trouble. I don't think that's necessarily even the question. Okay, but it does so. form a neat segue to our term of the week. So last week, we covered obverse and reverse, which is what the layman, so to speak, or lay person, would refer to as heads and tails. And this week, we're talking about devices. Now, the term devices refers to any portion of a coin outside of its rim, so anything within... You know, most coins are circular. Some are square, but yeah, world know. coins of all different shapes. Sure, but let's let's for the sake of the argument, just picture a round coin. Anything within the rims, anything that's within the sort of the field of the coin. Now, field is a term we're going to be covering next week, but for this week, any raised component of a coin design within, you know, outside of the rims, because the rims are part of the striking process. It's the edge of the coin. Anything else within those rims that is raised up above sort of the flat, you know, the flat field of the coin, that's called a device. So to make this tangible, listeners, feel free to take out a penny or a dime or a quarter or some piece of pocket change and look at it. If you're looking at, let's say, a Lincoln cent, for example, then the bust, Victor David Brenner's bust of Abraham Lincoln is a device. The word liberty, e pluribus unum, in God we trust, all of those Anything raised, the text, the elements of the design, everything, that is called a device. Numismatists refer to that as a device. And devices sit in the field, but field is our term for next week. So for now, devices are any raised aspect of a coin's design. Now, we've just heard about device, and I will say that Newfoundland, the question, we're back to trivia now. Mm -hmm. The question relates to... The last Newfoundland coins were struck in what year? But there's a particular device on coins of Newfoundland All right. which are really exciting, really fun. Do you know what I'm talking about? This is the Venus flytrap. Did you know that? No, I didn't. Okay. I'm learning, so, hey, I'm learning too, listeners. So, so the Venus flytrap is on some coins of Newfoundland. It is? It absolutely Wait. is. The, that the that, pitcher plant. Is that that plant that appears on uh, the one cent? Yes. Oh, I yes. don't know about that. It's pitcher plant. I mean, oh, it's, that's a it's, pitcher plant? It's like a Venus flytrap. So yeah, yeah, that, yeah, no, no, I know. Yeah. Oh, so, cool. So, I actually did not know that that's what that was. So this is a bonus trivia inside the trivia. Oof. Very Rushing meta. nesting doll of trivia we've got yes. here. Yes. So the question, though, the original question. Original question. The last Newfoundland coins were struck in what year? That would be 1947. Absolutely. Yeah, the and Canadian it, provinces used to issue their own coins, and Newfoundland did up until... Fairly recently, 1947 was a little while ago, but yeah, nonetheless. And in 1948, there was a special silver dollar to mark Newfoundland's addition to the Confederation. Yep. 1947 was an auspicious year at, at the Royal Canadian Mint because they had um, coins with little maple leaves on there, you know, reflecting some changes in the British Commonwealth and 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 all that. So it's a very important year for Canadian numismatic history. Let's. Stay in North America. Gosh, this has been focused on North America. We're, and, we're doing it. Uh, this week, uh, We want I want to discuss something that was in the news in uh, mainline publications, you know, mainstream publications. The not, mainstream media. Yeah, but not, not someplace that's focused like, you know, we, we focus on numismatic uh, events and, and coverage and news. So there were two coins found, Spanish coins, from the 13th century, 17th century. These were found in... 
in Utah's Glen Canyon National Park, mm-hmm. and uh, there was uh, all sorts of news coverage about this. And what does this mean? What's mm-hmm. how how are these coins? Uh, how do they make it there? Uh, Spanish coins made it to Utah, so it's really one of those archaeological puzzles. Except. More often than not, what's Occam's razor? The most likely explanation is accurate. And in this case, this didn't rewrite archaeological history, didn't change our understanding of North American history. These coins were just found among a pile of other coins, assorted many, many more recent. And there really wasn't any reason, at least historians and park officials who talked about the matter, didn't seem to think that these were in the pockets of any of the Spanish explorers or conquistadors who were wandering around North America between the 15th and 19th centuries. So that really leaves their sort of how it is that they came to be there kind of leaves that up to the imagination because, you know, the 13th and 17th century, that would have been, at least in the case of the 13th century, that was quite a bit before the conquistadors were wandering around. Yeah. So it's it's hard to believe that, you know, DeSoto or Cortez or any of those people who were sort of marauding over what is today Mexico and the United States, I sort of have a hard time imagining them bringing their coin collection of, you know, two or three hundred year old coins. The the coin would have been two or three hundred years old at the time. I have a hard time imagining them doing that. Well, and, and I swear I've read reference to this. Maybe it was in an online forum about a a dealer who mischievously threw old coins into different places like the Grand Canyon or elsewhere <laughs> as a sort of like um, a gift to the future that, you know, to, to leave some sort of puzzling uh, thought. I, I, I swear I, like I, that. I swear I discussed this with That's... my late late friend and, and former Coin World colleague, uh, Eric Von Klinger. Maybe I'm mixing the, the timeline up, but yeah, I, I absolutely have heard of that and it would not... It's the Great American Coin Hunt before the Great American Coin Hunt, huh? Yeah, and, and this is um, Spanish, the Great Spanish Coin Hunt in North America. <laughs> I mean, it, it's really bizarre, but there's these stories every once in a while, and it's interesting to see how they sometimes get traction in uh, mainstream publications that don't look at them with the critical eye that a collector might. Yes, and certainly Coin World might. Or that an historian familiar with the period and with the currency involved might. Well, and, and I mean, it's it's exciting. We, we as collectors, we as humans love to make discoveries. We we enjoy that prospect of, oh, yeah. of, of finding things, uh, recognizing patterns maybe that somebody else hasn't. But more often than not, it's uh, there's you know, while there might not be evidence of, you know, somebody was cited doing this, you know, seen doing this, it just makes so much more sense. The burden of proof to suggest some broader archaeological or historical implications is such, there's such a hurdle to, to get past that. Yeah, and, absolutely. Um, and so it was just, just interested in that, wondered um, 
wonder what you thought. Let, let us know. Have you ever planted a uh, a coin, mm. an old coin? And I mean, how cool would it be to leave a, a circa 200, 300 uh, AD Roman copper, one of these very common, <laughs> you know, Constantius yeah. or one of, you know, the, the uh, a common bronze, common bronze ancient Roman can, coin. Yeah, you can get for under five dollars in many cases. Yeah. You know, just ne- maybe next time I go to Grand Canyon, I'll toss one in. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out the Romans had uh, gotten a little bit farther than than, they, uh, than we thought that they had. Yeah, they, they, they made it past Hadrian's Wall and then some. Oh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so that's fun. If you have a question, though, let us know. Uh, or a theory. We, you know, hey, you know, numismatic conspiracy theories. We, uh, we'd love to hear what you think. That'll that'll be an episode in the future. But, uh, <laughs> but, but for Sounds now, good. you know, be sure to connect with us. Yeah, we would love to hear from you and whatever theories you have. This episode of the Coin World Podcast is sponsored by the Coin World Marketplace. Are you selling your coins on the Coin World Marketplace? Put your inventory in front of buyers from around the globe. Visit coinworld.market today and become a seller. And now, back to the show. Speaking of ancient Romans in America, please enjoy our interview with Ira Goldberg, who helped to put together the Tyrant Collection, which is a massive and continually expanding collection of coins with the images of tyrants or rulers, rulers, even presidents. Yes. Part of that collection, which is quite an extraordinary collection in its totality, uh, will be available to be seen at Long Beach this week. And we talked to Ira Goldberg about it. So please enjoy your interview with him. I'd like to welcome everyone to a conversation with Ira Goldberg of Goldberg Coin and Collectibles, here to talk about the Tyrant Collection, which parts of which will be on exhibit at the Long Beach Expo, June 6, 7, and 8. Thank you for joining us, Ira. Well, it's my pleasure. Uh, Chris and Jeff. For, for anybody who really is unfamiliar with the collection, this is being uh, promoted as the world's most valuable private coin collection. How expansive is the Tyrant collection? Uh, it's a good question. Uh, we, we honestly feel that it is the uh, world's most valuable private coin collection, and it's not being promoted to sell at all. The Tyrant is, in fact, uh, much younger than me, and he will... Uh, Probably he still be collecting uh, when I'm long and gone. So I won't. We're not publicizing this, uh, exposing the collection to be sold. It's just to promote and educate the public that a collection like this exists. And really, what it does, it tells uh, the, the, the financial history and the political history of of all you know civilizations. Because the idea of the Tyrant Collection is that coins which have been around for you know, uh, thousands of years show that every time a person comes into power, be it a uh, a king, a, a ruler, a potentate, a tyrant, a president, a, a dictator, whatever, they're all tyrants. And the first thing that they do is issue a coin with their name on it or with their badge or some identification or their portrait. And so we decided uh, about 15 years ago to to go on with this uh, collection. It was really started soon after I built the uh, Millennia Collection, and we sold that. But this collection uh, concentrates on the tyrants of of history. And uh, each Long Beach Coin Show, it's our intention to show a different portion of the collection. Uh, There's also a U.S. collection that's magnificent, and that will be shown. And the the two collections, or all the collections together, uh, I can't conceive of anything today that could have more value. 
So if listeners here come to the June 6, 7, and 8 Long Beach show this year, 2019, they won't see anything that has already been on exhibit in any of the previous four or five to this point? That is correct. They're all, it's all the different portions of the collection. This coming exhibit concentrates on tyrants of the Tiber. Of course, that represents Roman coinage from the concept uh, through the fall of Rome, following through to the various invaders, the Ostrogoths and the Lombards, and, and then the Byzantines. And of course, the Byzantine Empire really moved to Constantinople. So this collection will show, again, only the Western coins, the coins that were struck in the West, which uh, represents the, the Tiber. And then following on the heels of that are the coins of the popes, from the first pope to you know to the present. And they're all really aligned to the, uh, the Tiber River. That's the tie-in. How do you wrap your mind around a collection that is half full of once-in-a-lifetime coins? I mean, so far, probably the most notable, uh, the most exciting to me, because uh, I remember writing the story about it when it was sold, was the set, the 1937 Edward VIII proof set, but which is, you know, like the only one in private hands. There's all manner of rarities in this collection. This didn't just sort of come to being overnight. Like you said, the Millennia Collection was like 10 years ago-ish, right? 2008. I remember the That's correct. three catalogs for that, and that, that, that was a great sale. You said it started around that time. Was there any work on this beforehand? You mentioned this buyer is uh, anonymous and fairly young. So is that about the origins of the collection, 2008? Mm -hmm. Yes, I think that he's been collecting even before that, but I, with no rhyme or reason, uh, just because he liked coins. And uh, after Millennia Collection, I was able to spend some time helping to work with him on what his desires were. And we hit upon the theme of uh, tyrants of uh, you know of, of the various waters. And there's a lot of collections that come you know that will uh, we need to show yet. I mean, there's you know uh, tyrants of the Seine, uh, tyrants of the uh, Rhone and Rhine rivers. They'll take in uh, the Holy Roman Empire, uh, tyrants of the uh, of the Spanish Main, uh, which will all be all the Spanish mints. I mean, there's. You know, it's, it really goes through from beginning of civilization till till today, but mostly concentrates on coins prior to uh, World War One, because after World War One, coins didn't have the same economic influence as say paper money. But prior to that, uh, it was coins, gold and silver that really tell the story of the political power and the economic power of each of these nations. Well, this might seem something of a silly question, but in the case of societies where the authority of the king or the czar or whatever other uh, name for ruler, in societies where those rulers' authority was tempered by some kind of other governing body, I assume that the term tyrant is a little bit broad in this context. Is that fair to say? You understand that perfectly, yes. <laughs> because, look, look at uh, Great Britain. You hardly would call the Queen, you know, Queen Elizabeth II a tyrant, but she's represented in the collection. doesn't necessarily mean the person was evil. But then you have somebody like Henry VIII who was didn't exactly uh, pull a Dale Carnegie and win friends and influence people in, in the positive sense. 
That's correct. That's how we you, you, the term also usually associated with uh, you know with power, with uh, destruction, and all that, but not necessarily. I am curious to to push the theme of of tyranny to North America. I feel like some of our listeners might try might think of America not as a nation ruled by a tyrant unless they really don't like various presidents. If fellows were toying with that now, <laughs> do we call that? I mean, I thought maybe we would call it the uh, Patriots of the uh, Potomac. <laughs> but he hasn't decided on that yet. Thematically, though, to fit within, granted, a broad definition of a tyrant, what examples from the United States qualify as would be eligible for this. Yeah, well, all, you know, basically, uh, uh, his collection of U.S. Is, is phenomenal. I mean, I don't want to discuss what's in there, but all the great rarities are there. So I have to ask, because I, I admit I was surprised to hear you go down this path, because, you know, my exposure to this collection has been from the world side. The fact that this collection has U.S. coins, we got to put you on the spot here. Does it have the 1933 $20 double eagle? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, nothing, nothing illegal. Oh, We're asking. Uh, that's, I mean, part of the problem of putting together some of these great coins is that these these national heritage acts are getting tougher and tougher, you know, to find some, you know, really super material because we're not trying to necessarily fill in holes. It has to be of a certain quality, yeah. really top quality coins. Uh, and there's, there are some of these uh, medieval coins that are so god awful ugly that it's extremely rare. Only one, two, three pieces known. Right. And you mentioned that the tightening of national heritage laws made acquiring material for the collection more difficult. Yes. I wonder, in what ways did it make it more difficult? And what ways did you find, not around the law, but what ways did you find it easiest to acquire these pieces in so as to conform to the law? Most of the coins, not all, but most of them come out of well-known, well-publicized public auctions. I'd rather pay more money, uh, you know, to have good, clean bill of health and recourse in case some government comes after uh, us for a coin than of buying it from a source that you shouldn't be doing business with. You know, coins that come out of uh, Cyprus and coins that come out of, uh, you know, Greece and coins that come out of Iraq. And it's, it's dangerous uh, dealing in coins like that. And I will not buy from the sources. Is it likely, and, and maybe you know that's too broad of a question, if I go to my bookshelf at home and grab the uh, Hunt Brothers Ancient Coin Collection catalogs, that some of those pieces in there are in this collection? Yes, you are correct. Some okay. are. We like pedigrees that have been in this country uh, or have been exported and have a nice uh, history to them. Yeah, known quantities. And we know that provenance pays, and it also you have to pay for provenance in that regard. You're absolutely right in that. We we think about that all the time. In each sort of subgroup of this collection, I imagine that certain sort of uh, pictorial themes emerge. I mean, when I think of Rome, I picture, you know, a facies, and I imagine, you know, certain national symbols are pretty common. Yeah, like in the Roman collection that we'll be showing coming up Long Beach, you've got everything from the first Fliminus, the first Roman to be put on a gold coin. His portrait, there's only two or three in the world. This is the best one. You've got an eyed Mar, you know, coin of Brutus. I, I was hoping I'd hear those words. <laughs> yes, there is a magnificent Brutus, eyed Mar, Denarius. There's also the finest Brutus, Gold Arius. And all 12 Caesars are in there in gold in magnificent quality. 
that's awesome. And just for the listeners who might not be familiar with the ancient landscape, Eidmar or Ides of March silver coin is has been ranked by experts of ancient coins as the top one. It's the cover of the uh, top 100 ancient coins by Harlan Burke. Fantastic story relating to its production and the reason it exists. And whenever one comes up for sale, regardless of condition, draws quite a bit of interest. So I would imagine as much as it would be a centerpiece to anyone else's collection, it almost seems like it would get lost in the grandeur and, and majesty of the rest of these pieces. Yes, yes, but that's why uh, we want to put it on display. We issue a catalog that's free to everybody who comes and views. We have nothing to sell, but Ides of March coin. I mean, how historical to have the, the daggers uh, on the reverse with the portrait of Brutus. And the reason he did it, because Julius Caesar took upon himself to cross the Rubicon and, and declare himself dictator. And, and of course, uh, Brutus and Cassius and the conspirators were, were senators, and they, they stabbed him to death. And for him, they have the audacity to put himself on the obverse and the reverse, not only the daggers, the date he did it. It is an amazing coin, and the quality of this may well be the finest one in existence. Awesome. Now, how many different constituent components will be exhibited? So we're coming up on the, what, the fifth one, I think? And yes. So, so how many, and there's three Long Beach shows a year, so how we did, We're going to do... Um, we're going to do two Long Beach shows a year of World and Ancient and one of U.S. starting next year. Okay. That will still take how many years to unfold completely? I don't know. <laughs> you know, he's still collecting. Okay. We're still adding. So uh, I don't know. We've, we come up with themes, and uh, I mean, I just rattled off a few before. Tyrants of the Seine will be all the French coins. Yeah. Uh, tyrants of the Rhone. Tyrants of the uh, Rhine rivers will be the tyrants of Germany and the Holy Roman Empire. Those are three exhibits there. What about tyrants of the uh, Nile? I've got this Egyptian, wonderful Egyptian collection with magnificent Ptolemaic gold coins and silver. There's four right there. Uh, tyrants of the, of the Greek Isles. He has an ancient Greek coin collection. Tyrants of the uh, Mediterranean. Tyrants of the uh, Spanish Main. There are seven. That's, uh, if I do two a year, you know, I'll be almost 80 years old by the time I do the, uh, the next one. <laughs> This is all you could even do. The this one would be catchy. The tyrants of the Tigris, or the, and the you know the tyrants. We did that. That was the second. Uh, the second one, Tiger of the Tigris and Euphrates. That's catchy. Which was showed the earliest coinage. Yes, we show them at the Long Beach Coin Show, and uh, it would be easy to do it also at the ANA. But the client does not want to. He likes to take his friends and family. He he goes there uh, incognito. No one knows who he is. And he doesn't want to fly uh, someplace like uh, where the A&A is. He likes it in his backyard. That makes sense. As broad a question as this is, I wonder about your methodology as to, you know, you have the Tyrants of the Tigris collection, or you, you're given sort of a theme. And then I imagine that it's a lot of scanning through auction lots and trying to find you know, especially the more obscure material, I imagine you might actually have to go to the region to try to find. What is broadly your approach to assembling such a comprehensive collection of such high-value material? I get about three or four or five catalogs a day from around the world. I spend an hour or two a day going through to see if there's anything of interest. I mark it, okay, and then I uh, get it to uh, the tyrant, and then he looks at my notes and decides what he wants what he doesn't. I am also offered coins from all over the world. 
but often they're the coins that have no pedigree. I'll give you an example. I uh, was offered a fantastic uh, Mark Antony and Cleopatra gold arius of uh, of the legionary, you know, the legionary series. Mm-hmm. The, the denarii are common in gold, extremely rare. I was offered one absolute mint state of the second legion. There's only one or two known in gold. This surpassed anything. I flew to London. I got the. I saw the coin. It really looked good in the photo. And as soon as I saw it in hand, my heart sank. I didn't think it was right. I took it to the British Museum, double-checked it, and it wasn't right. Then that happens. And I try to keep those trips to a minimum. I travel to the major European sales where I'm on the phone. Or Ivan. Ivan's been a big help for me because he's my, you know, he's my right-hand person, and he really manages and curates his collection. So when you encounter coins with no pedigree, or you, know, you were disappointed with the, with a gold coin that turned out to, to not be right, mm-hmm. when you're dealing with coins without a pedigree, what steps are there to ensure that this coin hasn't been stolen or isn't sort of the, the product of sort of, you know, imperial cultural thievery, that sort of thing. And, and what, you know, are, are there any steps taken to, to do that? And, or is that part of the cultural property laws? Uh, you ask a good question. Uh, that's why I prefer buying uh, out of known auctions uh, and, and with proper pedigrees. But uh, not, a, not 100% of the cases. Some coins have been in long-time collections or have been here in the United States. But I'm hesitant to go to Europe just to buy. I've, I want to have a specific reason for going because everything I bring in this country is declared. Yeah. Now, one of the things that sort of, I don't want to say puzzles me, but maybe that's the best way to frame it is, what point do you run out of things that are the best? I mean, you know, there's by any sort of rubric, there's $100 million or more in this collection, and maybe you can speak to the, the overall current value. But at what point do you have all the good stuff? Well, no, there's always coins to buy, and there's always coins to improve. Believe it or not, if I get a better coin, regardless if he has it or not, we upgrade. Okay. Does that answer? So, I mean, we start buying duplicates and triplicates, and then we have. I mean, we bought coins we felt fed in perfectly, and a better one comes by, we buy the better one, as long as it's not you know, crazy. I mean, that's why it uses me, and... Uh, and uh, it has to make sense. But uh, we're constantly buying to improve the collectioner, and I have not sold a duplicate of his yet. What coin is can never be in the Tyrant collection that's impounded in a museum that... Um, that doesn't be de- de-acquisition? Correct. We won't touch anything like that. But but I'm saying what what's out there that is unfortunately no matter you know how hard you work and and how much effort and money and you know just the the work to build the collection is just it's just out of hand. Dude. I mean, there's a number of coins like that. I mean, what about the coin the exchequer uh, uh, was paid for to to behead uh, Charles uh, Charles One? You know, uh, okay. uh, the uh, the triple unite is. You know the largest coin where he proclaims his uh, innocence and he promises to obey the laws of the parliament and religious freedom. But when they chopped his head off, uh, there was a multiple uh, triple uh, unite, and there's only one, and it's in the British Museum. 
or either that or it's in Wales. I'm not sure. But that coin can never be bought. Yeah. Uh, there's uh, you know an eyed mar. One of them has a hole in it, which we're not interested in. And then one's at the Berlin Museum. That coin is not available. There are a number of coins that are not available. Um, you just you got to pick your pick your spots. And there's plenty from which to choose. There's plenty, particularly when there's uh, improvements. Yes. I wonder, aside from the the public exhibitions at Long Beach. What access will be given to the Tyrant Collection for researchers or people interested in in reimaging or writing about the collection or good question or Good question. researching a topic tangentially related to the collection or the rulers in it, etc. You've asked a good question. We maintain a website. I think it's tyrantcoins.com. Everything that's in the collection that's been shown is available online. So, but would would there be any ability for a researcher to see the coins in person, or I doubt it. Yeah, aside <laughs> yeah. from obviously the Long Beach check. Yeah, I, I know the the tyrantcollection.com is out there. From what I've seen so far, there's some out there, but not everything that's been exhibited yet. And that, to me, would be a wonderful vehicle for for those folks who can't get to the Long Beach shows to see. I mean, these are million dollar collections, several million dollar collections every show in custom made cases. It's, every one of the exhibits so far, Ron. A fourth one is online. This one will be online right after the exhibit. Okay. Okay. So every you know researchers who want to look, you now if researchers have any questions, just go online and ask the questions, and when we have time, we'll answer them. Either Ivan or I. Awesome. So, in the context of the numismatic community, and in the sort of context of numismatic history and all that, what do you see the kind of significance of the Tyrant Collection on the culture? of numismatics and collecting, what impact do you see this collection having in the future? That's a good question, and I'm not sure, but the idea is to expose people, collectors, people who have interest in history, the tangibility of being able to see and virtually almost feel these coins, because that's why we spent the money we did on showcases, on lighting, and presenting it in its best light. And hopefully, just like the Millennium Collection, it will create new collectors and bring them to the forefront. We issued these catalogs. I think they're very informative, and they can be able to compare and see. But these collections in the past, such as the Newman Collection and the Brand Collection, these great collections that had massive amount of coins, have been disposed of. They're sold and broken up. Maybe this collection will be sold someday, but I doubt that it'll be sold in my lifetime. The ultimate fate of the collection, 100 years from now or however long in the future, will the collection be passed down or will it be put into a museum? Will it have its own museum? I don't know. There there, there aren't any future plans in place? No. No, he he has uh, he has children, and they may have interest, but as of now, uh, he doesn't want to talk about it. Okay, fair enough. Now I'm curious: Does the tyrant, the person who's assembling this, does he have a favorite tyrant, and do you? I don't think he does. He's not a, a real emotional guy, and if he does, he's kept it to himself. Do I have? Yes, virtually every exhibit that there's a favorite coin or two. I mean, there's, for example, the the story of the Edward the Seventh, Edward the Eighth set. How how I was able to get it out of there is part of my numismatic history. But the coin that stands out there it was the the double leopard. How we were it was in a in an auction, a famous auction, 15 years ago. I bid on it then. 
because we in the beginning we wanted to buy the best coins, and it was bought and it was sitting in the Cambridge Museum. I had no idea that the coin would be available for sale. Okay, so that was getting that coin and getting the the ship rail with uh, Queen Elizabeth looking out. It looks as if a, a master painter created the coin. It's, it, it, her face just pops off the, out of the boat, out of the ship. It's an incredible coin. As, as if on the day of production. Yeah. I mean, and then in this collection uh, that will be shown, there's there, there's some unbelievable, uh, beautiful uh, uh, Roman art. Some of these portraits, uh, you got to see it to appreciate it. And then it was laid out on display. I can't think of other than maybe, you know, the Brutus Aureus uh, and the Fliminus coin I mentioned and the Eid Mar and there's some Constantines that are just unbelievable beauty. There's there's some fantastic coins. So it's hard to pick a favorite and I don't I don't get a trying to get a, a too attached, but I am. That's awesome. I, I'm sitting here uh, just thinking of how jealous I am because you get to make a living and play with these rarities and don't have to be um, saddled with figuring out how to pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> that, no, yeah, thank God I, I'm not in that position. No, this is uh, it's a unique situation. I recognize at this time in my career, it's, it's just what's keeping me going. It's a lot of fun. I'm on a treasure hunt. How, and I've always been there. So how how much fun is that? That's great. And that sounds like the perfect place to thank you for your time and for walking us and the listeners through the Tyrant Collection. And we'll be looking for this exhibit and future exhibits, see what else is in the collection, to see uh, as the Tyrant continues to build the collection. And uh, certainly it's a wonderful thing, exciting thing, that folks coming to the shows can be exposed to such quality and the story behind the pieces well said both fellows chris and jeff thank you very much thank you all the best thank you very much we hope you enjoyed our interview with ira goldberg next week we have an interview with andrew kimmel of paragon numismatics we talked to him about some common misconceptions in the numismatic market and how to buy really really great coins if you want to listen to that Be sure to find us on your favorite podcast provider. Until then, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Send us your questions and feedback on Facebook at facebook.com slash coinworld or on Twitter at coinworld. Be the first to know about our next episode by signing up for our newsletter. Go to coinworld.com and click on free newsletter to sign up today. This episode of the Coin World Podcast was brought to you by the Coin World Marketplace. All the safety, trust, and convenience you'd expect from Coin World. With over 40,000 coins available, visit coinworld.market to explore our inventory today.